Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello, listeners. I hope you're well. You are now tuned into another installment of the Beautiful Game podcast and Eurosport collaboration, bringing you coverage of this year's Euro 2020 tournament. Now, I hope you guys are all as excited as, as we are and, 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 you know, left with goosebumps as we have been over the past few days with some of the, the fixtures that we've uh, seen on display. And we were saying, of course, off air that, you know, you could literally uh, pick any of these fixtures out of a hat um, as an advert for this tournament in terms of how exciting they've, they, they've all been. And on this episode, of course, we are going to be uh, dissecting and going through uh, the, the latest fixtures in, in the round. As ever, I'm your host, Budge. I'm joined by my faithful co-conspirators, Dej, and of course, Pete Charland from Eurosport Boys. Are we well? Oh, yeah, very, very well. You can't complain after the <laughs> feast of football that we've seen over the last few days. So ready to get right into it. A hundred percent. Now, there's so many different fixtures, as we already mentioned, that we could start off with. But we have to start off with, of course, uh, the, the game that is freshest in the memory, which is uh, the, the game between England and Germany. So many people were clocking off work uh, early. You know, you had the all staffers going around with everyone being given permission to, to log <laughs> off early so that, you know, everyone was uh, watching, watching this game, um, you know, in eager anticipation. And of course, it's been 55 years that England have waited uh, for a knockout win in a tournament over Germany and, and managed to do so yesterday at Wembley, you know, on home territory in front of a, uh, what felt like a full capacity uh, crowd because, you know, how loud uh, and raucous the atmosphere was at, at Wembley yesterday. And going into the game, you know, Germany has had qualified for the uh, semi-final stages of the Euros three times back to back since Joachim Löw uh, took over in 2006. So a lot of people felt that it was going to be more of the same for them, despite the fact that they haven't looked at their, uh, you know, their brilliant best uh, so far this tournament. But we've seen them, you know, uh, absolutely blitz Portugal. And so you thought potentially they, they do have, you know, the, the still the quality required to go over the line. But that wasn't the case, that wasn't the case yesterday. Uh, Dej, kick us off with with this game. What were what were the what were the key things that that you identified? I know the three at the back for yeah. Gareth Gar Southgate was a key talking point before the game. How did you feel when you saw that that team being an, uh, being announced? Did you feel that it had enough 
to, to get England over the line? I think even before we start, it's like Gareth Southgate has been on a trial basis game by game. It's almost like people have been waiting for him to fail. And each time he names his 11, they do him proud. I mean, three at the back this time, I think the idea was to negate Germany's biggest threats. As you mentioned in the game against Portugal, we saw Goosens and Kimmich running riot. So Gareth Southgate decided, okay, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to match this 11 up because I think we can negate their main threats whilst imposing ourselves. And I think that's how it manifested. I think we saw both teams had control of the game in different periods. England's game plan was just to remain as solid as possible. You know, we saw Jordan Pickford make, you know, a few good saves. And I think two players in this team that are underestimated, Calvin Phillips and Declan Rice, the amount of work they get through in the middle of the park goes unnoticed. I think people are quick to, you know, give Raheem Sterling, Sterling the plaudits, rightly so, Jack Grealish as well. But what those two do in front of the back three is magnificent because if we remember before the tournament, <laughs> the central defence was airmarked as England's weakest point, but they haven't conceded a goal so far. And that, I believe, is a large amount of testament to those two midfielders. But just going back to the game, I think, Everything surrounding it, as you mentioned, the fans, raucous atmosphere. I had a friend that was at the stadium and he said that was the best atmosphere he's ever heard. It's like you've got that holy trinity of players, fans, you know, manager, all together, all singing from the same hinge sheet. Mm. And personally for me, it might be coming home. <laughs> it might be coming home. It might just be coming home. Um, just on that point on um, Gareth Southgate's selection, of course, as, as Dej mentioned, Pete, it is always a talking point ahead of every single game. Um, and again, it's because of the fact that a lot of people feel that the, the, the quality and, and the depth of the England squad is enough to, to, to see us reach that, the latter stages of the competition and, and ultimately go on to win it. And another point uh, in contention has always been the inclusion of Jack Grealish and whether he should start and not, or not, right? And we've seen him in back-to-back games come off um, the, the, the bench and, and, and contribute a, a, a key pass or an assist in a game, right? I think it's two assists in two games for him. The question that everyone still needs answering is, has he done enough to earn a starting place in the 11 for Gareth Southgate? Or is it that his contribution is best coming off the bench to impact a game which might be going a bit stale and, and, and to change things up a little bit. Where do you stand on it? I think the interesting thing about Grealish that I don't really see anyone talking about, I think because he's playing, is that he's coming off a long and pretty serious injury. And it's all well and good saying he's coming off the bench and making a difference and getting an assist. But there's every chance that that's all he's capable of right now. There's every chance that he isn't really at the sort of match pace that you'd want for someone to start a game and go through 90 minutes because he hasn't done that yet. So for me, at least, I think the way you're using him at the moment, if you're Southgate, I think that's working fine. Like He's a brilliant impact sub to have. If you're a tired defender, either a fullback or a centre-back, the last thing you'd want is Jack Grealish coming on. Because A, as we saw yesterday in the game, it gets the England crowd revved up to a second gear. B, he's so unique in the way that he can either run at you or he can sit deeper and pick a pass off to get, him, to get someone else in behind you. So I think for now, I mean, as you said, England haven't conceded a goal through to the quarterfinals, I, you don't need to be too worried about various things. I think, as Dead said, I think you look at the 
you look at now what's left in front of England. I don't, you don't, you never want to be the person who's putting pressure on them or making statements that just create unwanted pressure. But real, in reality, anything less than the final now is going to be a little bit of a disappointment. The draws opened up really nicely. They beat in the hardest team theoretically they're going to have to face. Obviously, there are one or two caveats to that. You imagine this Germany team was very disappointing. We can probably get onto that a bit later. Um, but yeah, I just think if, if you're Southgate now, I just think we had Paul Hayward at Wembley last night and he wrote a piece which was saying basically, can we just stop doubting Gareth Southgate now? Like he got England to a World Cup semi-final. He's now got them into the quarterfinals, beating Germany, probably England's biggest rival. And he's he hasn't he's not really doing a lot wrong. Like, yeah, it could be a little bit more exciting, but like, good Lord, France were boring as anything three years ago and they won the World Cup. Do you think their fans cared about how boring they were? No. <laughs> so if, it, if, it, if they keep going like this, I don't understand why anyone's got anything to complain about. Yeah, no, 100%. Well, well said. And, and just to go back to a point that both you and Dej touched on, Pete, um, which has been the defence and the fact that England haven't conceded and have been very difficult to, to, to beat and, and to concede um, goals against. Um, as part of that defence, a player that, you know, we haven't necessarily touched on or, or has, you know, drawn many plaudits is uh, Jordan Pickford, who's playing in, in between the sticks for England, right? And of course... You know, over the years, he's been a player that has not gone without criticism. And the fact that, you know, a lot of people have felt that he's a bit rash and he, you know, he, he sometimes plays to the occasion a bit too much. And I just remember seeing not too long ago uh, uh, a piece or two come out where he was speaking about the fact that he's actually been um, working on that aspect of his game. And he's been seeing a psychologist to sort of help with his temperament and whatnot. And I wonder... You know, I think 27 now, are we seeing a, a much more mature Jordan Pickford? Is, you know, are his best years ahead of him? And are we seeing that now he's coming into his own a little bit and, and he's developing, you know, quite well? Because he's pulled off some really, really important saves so far this tournament. And, and he did so in that, in, in that game against Germany as well, didn't he, Dej? Yeah, um, I remember the, the save against Kai Havertz, even though it was a bit central... He's done his bread and butter and we've seen too many times over the years where he's made comical mistakes. He's got too involved in the occasion and a lot of people have sort of compared him to like Joe Hart, you know, in the tunnel where Joe Hart gets the people amped up and you're the goalkeeper. You're meant to be the frame of reference from calm. And we even spoke to Yannick Bellassi on the podcast and I asked him, like, how is Jordan Pitford? Because people have this impression of him as this sort of larger than life character, always wants to get involved. And he said, no. Nah, Trust me, he's calm, he's cool. And as you mentioned, he's probably seen or been told by people close around that, listen, you need to sort yourself out. So for him to take that sort of step and see a psychologist, that's great for him. That shows that he wants to improve. And I think towards the back end of the season, we started to see him put in some good performances. He was dropped for Robin Olsen. Then he came back into the team and he started producing saves. And I think for England, the key thing for Gareth Southgate, which you can see is, he wants players that he can trust within the England fold. Another player, Raheem Sterling, didn't really perform towards the back end of the season for City. But when it comes to England, these players know how to perform and they, they can always hold themselves high. So I think, yeah, he's been a, he's been a big you know, plus for England. I think that last point's the key one. I think, I don't think under any circumstances, Southgate was ever going to drop Pickford. I mean, I've been one of Pickford's most vocal critics, I think, in terms of... I just think he's got so much talent and it just didn't look like he was applying himself. But 
the way he's performed for England over the last year or so proves me wrong and proves that he has got what it takes to be a top-level international goalkeeper because it is different. He plays for Everton. The defence isn't great there. He's relatively busy a lot of the times. England dominate most of their games and have most of the possession in most of their games. It's an entirely different thing. It's something we really saw Joe Hart struggle with. When he came through at at Birmingham City and then when he was at Manchester City before, they started to really improve. He was busy. He was great. He was making 10 or 12 reflexes that saves every game. That one game against Barcelona in the Champions League is the one that always stands out when he made, I think, 10 saves that night. But when it got to the stage where City were getting better and England were getting better, he couldn't keep up because he didn't have the concentration levels to be the sort of keeper where you can only make one save in the game. And that's the one save you do. You've got to be alert for that. It's something that someone like Buffon's done so well. Mm. And if Pickford can add that sort of mentality and concentration levels to his game, then I think it shuts down any talk of Dean Henderson. Because I think a year ago, I think there's a real possibility if the years have been held last summer, that have been a genuine positional battle at goalkeeper. Because Henderson was coming off a great season with Sheffield United. And I, I think that, Pickford was having a bit of a rough season with Everton. And I think there was real concerns about whether Southgate was going to make a change in, in goal or stick with Pickford. But obviously now with the delay because of the coronavirus uh, pandemic, he hasn't had to make that decision because obviously Henderson hasn't played at all. Whereas Pickford, after, as Dead said, being dropped, has come back stronger and he's making those strides. And I think at 27, there's every chance he can be his goalkeeper for the next six or seven years. Like, goalkeepers obviously age differently to outfield yeah. players. So I think, mm-hmm. I think you're right to highlight him. I think he's one of the ones who deserves a lot of credit and who isn't getting them. That save from Timo Werner was critical, I think. Mm. And I think even the way, obviously with the Thomas Muller miss, I think even though he didn't obviously touch it, I think he he's always had that part of his game where he can get out quick. And I think that just helps because obviously against a player like Muller, who's not the quickest, I think just getting out, making it that little bit trickier because other keepers might have stayed. The other keepers might not have wanted to be caught out and maybe being taking the ball around them. But he... Again, that's awareness. He knew that Muller isn't the type of player who's going to take him around it, take it around him. If that was Werner and you come out like that, he's just knock it past you and tap into an empty net. Exactly. But, with, but with Muller, you know that you can come out, make it difficult for him, got the help from the centre-backs. And I think that was a really underrated bit of play from him. And I think, yeah, he deserves a lot of credit. I think even also Kyle Walker as well, his speed. I reckon Muller kind of saw him in his periphery and just mm. you know snatched at the shot. Yeah, 100%. And, and you guys... Um, mention a very key name in, in Thomas Muller. I'm sure there wouldn't be a, a, a player more relieved than Raheem Sterling. Oh, he yeah. almost went from hero to zero, you know, after scoring that goal and then that back pass. And you just see from the angle behind him, when Thomas Muller missed, yeah. you just saw the relief in, in, in his reaction at the fact that he, he missed. And I mean, Thomas Muller is a player that we know and love for his ruthless efficiency, you know? And the fact that, you know, he is, he doesn't need many chances. He doesn't need too much of sight of goal. Usually it's back of the net when you give him a chance, right? And I wonder if that is just a sign of the beginning of the end for him on the international stage. At 31, you know, is it likely we'll see him uh, at, at, you know, the next big tournament for for, for Germany, you know, the next Euros or, or the World Cup? You know, is is this potentially the 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 end of the road for a player that has been so efficient and 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 you know so devastating in front of goal uh, over the years? No, I, I don't think so. Hmm. I think I think he's coming off in a he's coming off a season where he got twenty assists in the Bundesliga. And like hmm. he was ripping teams apart, and I think Hansi Flick knows how to get the best out of him. And I actually think. I think he was a decent option for them to play. I think he should have probably come off rather than Timo Werner because I think the way. 
Germany were getting in through England's defence was through the pace of the front line. I think that's something the Ukraine will look to. But I think he's got a role to play for sure. I think Flick will look to him maybe even to start playing a little bit deeper. Like I think obviously it was more of a 3-4-2-1 for Lowe. I could see Flick going to a 3-4-1-2 as it were and playing two up top and then give Muller the 10 role and just let him create. Like if you've got players who will finish chances, Muller's going to put them on a plate for you. Like that's what his movement brings. And I think unless he decides to step away and he feels like his time is over, then I think he's still got a role to play. Like I think yesterday wasn't the game for him. I think England did a really good job of taking him out of it for the most part, apart from that chance and the little bit in the first 15, 20 minutes. But I think, yeah, I think he's still got a role to play. Now, of course, the other game that was being played to determine who would meet England in the quarterfinals was, of course, between Ukraine and Sweden. And it was Ukraine's first game in the knockout phase of the competition in their history, which was great to see. And um, Sweden, on the other hand, have only appeared in three knockout uh, stages um, at the Euros in, in their history. So... Uh, two teams who are both re- relatively inexperienced when it comes to the latter stages of the competition. Uh, the last time both these teams met was um, in Euro 2012 and Ukraine came behind to win 2-1. And that was courtesy of a brace from the now manager, Andrei Shevchenko, which is very, very interesting. And again, interesting to see that the, the game ended in the same way, uh, 2-1 to Ukraine this time round. Um, Pete, how, how did you see that game? What were the what were the key things that caught your attention? I thought it was a great game. Uh, I think it's the most important thing to say. I think all the games we're going to talk about today have been real treats. And I think it felt like at one stage this one was going to get left behind, I think, after all the euphoria after England, Germany. And I think just I think the ro- the emotional roller coaster of that game, aiding even for neutrals, I think it was a real in- really intense game. But this was a brilliant match. I think. The key for Ukraine and Andriy Shevchenko has been moving back to a back three. I think he tried to go over the back four in the first couple of games. It really wasn't working. And I don't really know why he moved because the back three had served them so well in qualifying. So, yeah, they've moved back to back three. They look way more solid now. Obviously, Sweden had their chances, but they just look a lot happier now. They're sort of doing a similar thing to what Bayern would like to do with Alfonso Davies in terms of how they're doing with um, Alexander Zinchenko. They're just giving him complete freedom at their left flank. Just go do whatever the hell you want. You're our best player. Like, just create from left wing back. That's fine. And I think I think the Ukraine are going to be a test for England. I don't think they're going to win, but obviously you don't know in this tournament. Um, but I think they're not going to be the pushover that everyone thinks. I think they were helped a lot by Sweden going down to 10 men. I think that made a real difference on the game. But they probably had the better of the chances, I think. I mean, the latter half, the last stage of the second half, it felt like the teams were like trading turns to hit the post and the crossbar, like it was chaos. Mm. But I think for Sweden, it's it's a bit of a transitional thing. I think for them, like they've obviously got some of the older players like Seb Larsson and uh, Alvin Ekdal. And then you've obviously got the young players coming through like Isaac and Kulisevsky. So I think they'll be back. I think they've got a lot of good young players coming through. Emil Forsberg was brilliant again. I think he's been one of the best players of the oh, tournament so far. Yeah. Um, Four goals, I think it was. He, he's got Yeah, yeah. He, from... It's a shame he won't. He, if Sweden had gone, I think if Sweden had got to the quarterfinals, I think he could have had a sh- outside shout winning the golden ball. But obviously now there's no chance for him. But yeah, I think for the Ukraine, I think there's still a couple of problems for Shoshenko to look at. But I think just looking at the way they're set up now, they seem way happier in this system than they did before. Mm. 
Yeah, hundred percent. And and you you mentioned him there, Emil Forsberg. I think he got one goal, but he should have gotten a a, a, a hat trick. Yeah, you know, yeah. sure, that hit, hit the, the woodwork, yeah. hit the crossbar. You know, another player um, who I wanted us to t- touch on because of the fact that we've spoken about him before in terms of producing those moments um, of magic and not necessarily being very consistent, but just having those moments is uh, Andre Yarmolenko. And his assist for Zinchenko, I thought was an absolute blinder because the way his body shape was, I thought he was going to shoot. And then to dink the ball into the back post for Zinchenko, I thought was, 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 pretty, uh, was, was, was pretty something. Um, and for me, that goes down as one of the assists of the, of, of, of the tournament. I don't know if you guys agree or if you can think of an, uh, an, another assist that was that, has been an absolute blinder so far this, this tournament. Can, can you think of any? Mm. Any that's particular one that stands that's out? definitely up there. Um, mm. Call me on the hop, Shatan, yeah. beforehand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know what? It just came There's to mind so just many now. goals. There's been... I think Benzema's assist to himself the other day was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> he dragged it, but... Yeah. <laughs> no, I can't think of... I've put, put you guys on the spot yes. a little bit. <laughs> just, a quick, just a quick one on Yarmolenko, though. Like, I, think, yeah. I think after the, um, the goal against the Dutch, we spoke about him a bit um, after that game. And I think I said something along the lines of that there's something different about him when he plays for the Ukraine. I think that's, there's a lot of players like that. I think you can, for whatever reason, at club level, it doesn't really click at different places. Like he's been around a few different clubs now. Mm. But I think when he plays for the Ukraine, you can just see a different kind of level of focus in his eyes and a different kind of responsibility. I think a lot of the times when at club level, he can be a player who wants to try and do everything by himself. But that often ends up in a shot canning off a defender from 25 yards out. But I think for the Ukraine, he wants to do everything but it's in a much more team-orientated way. Mm. I think obviously helps playing for a national legend like Shevchenko. But he's, again, I, I, I just think, I, if again, I come back to this. If I was in England, I wouldn't just write him off just because he's that inconsistent player who plays for West Ham. I think he can really hurt them. And I think he, him and Zinchenko down that sort of Ukraine left, England right, are going to be real problems because I think they are going to try and get at whoever it is. Because obviously Kieran Trippier came off um, at one stage, came back on. So... Whoever's playing down that right, I think they're going to really try and target them. But mm. yeah, it's just I always I always just find it really interesting to watch certain players because you just look, watch them for their clubs week in and week out, and you just think like, yeah, it's there, but it's not always there. But for mm. the Ukraine, for him, it just seems to always be there. And I think I think if they're going to get anything out of him, that left side is going to. Uh, sorry, if they get anything out of that game, I think the left side is going to be key. Hundred mm. percent. Mm. And and one other thing I just wanted to touch on is is the fact that you know so far in 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 the tournament we haven't had. Um, you know, thank thank goodness, any sort of devastating injuries or any really, really bad challenges, uh, which has definitely been a a plus and a a positive. But I think the red card for Marcus Danielson was was definitely the right one. Looking back at the replays of the challenge, I just I just thought, you know, thank thank goodness, uh, you know, the the, the player didn't come off too 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 bad. I think he had to still come off injured, but I don't think it was anything too too worrying but I think challenges like that we've been we've been able to avoid them for the majority of the tournament we just don't want to see those kind of you know uh, uh, challenges coming in because you know that that kind of if it did make the impact that it could have that could have been that player's uh, I can't remember the player who he tackled but that could have been his season written off before it's even started you know it was if you saw that like the, 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 the way his um, leg 
bent and uh, backwards. It was, it was one of those that it's like, thank goodness, you, you know, you, you came off that lucky. Um, but yeah, hopefully we don't see any more challenges like that uh, for the rest of the tournament. And, and all of these players can come through unscathed and go into their domestic seasons uh, fit and healthy, most certainly. Um, now, when we spoke just then about the, uh, the, the, the assists of the tournament so far, Dej, you uh, touched on uh, uh, um, an assist that Benzema made to himself oh. with a brilliant touch and, and a finish. And that is a perfect segue into, you know, one of the games that were up and down and back and forth and, you know, really took you through a, a roller coaster of emotions. And that was, of course, the game between France and, and, and Switzerland. Now, I have to say, this was a game that I had expected would be, um, you know, a fairly straightforward win for France. I thought 90 minutes would do it and I'd be able to switch over, uh, end the game and switch over and watch Love Island from nine o'clock. But that wasn't, that, wasn't the, <laughs> that wasn't the case. And I know that ultimately Mbappe will bear the brunt of the majority of the criticism after missing his penalty. And of course, we're going to have a deep dive into that. Um, as, uh, um, in, in a little while but surely the the issues for France happened f far before that point in the game I mean you can go back you can rewind back to being 3-1 up with nine minutes to go and not being able to defend that lead and you can go even further back to looking at the um, starting lineup that Didier Deschamps went with playing three at the back. And I know we spoke earlier about England going with for three at the back and it worked for them. Why, why didn't it work for Didier Deschamps? Let's, let's go all the way back to, to, to that. Or, or why did he choose to deploy that um, formation? The uh, only, Dej, yeah, go on. The, the only thing I can think of is that Hernandez, obviously Dinya came off with what looked like a mm. hamstring injury. So maybe we're short at that area. So he thought the way to sort of stifle this problem because he's so stockpiled with midfielders mm -hmm. is to go with a midfielder out on the left. But clearly it didn't work because that was a an area of the pitch that, you know, Switzerland exploited to great success with the crosses mm -hmm. into the box and the headers. But yeah, going back to the game, I think topsy-turvy, Jekyll and Jive, mm -hmm. you know, Switzerland could have been 2-0 up if they scored a penalty. Then two minutes later, France scored to make it 2-1. And I just think when you get to the stage of 3-1 in a game, you need to batten down the hatches. I think I said on the preview show that my main worry for France was the centre-backs. They don't have type A centre-backs. They've got type B with Kimpembe, Varane. These aren't assertive, dominant defenders. And we saw Longley as well slot into that back three and... He was bullied for one of the goals. You know, Kimpembe mm. sold himself short. And I think that comes down to game management. And the wider question is sort of like egos in a team. Like when you're sort of playing for yourself, can you come as a collective and do the dogged work to make sure you get the victory? And I thought, yeah, France's defensive play left a lot to be desired. It's all right scoring goals, but if you can't do your bread and butter, you're not going to win football matches against teams that are dogged and determined. England, England went to a World Cup semi-final playing three at the back. So, like, they know what they're doing. France never play three at the back. And it's just, it just doesn't work. Like, and, and I, yeah, I think ultimately the blame has to lie with Deschamps. I mean, the defending for the second and third goals, as um, they said, was pretty embarrassing, mm. to be honest. But I think if you're going to play that game again, why would you not shift Kempembe out to the left 
or even Longley, play one of them at left back, mm. it's obviously a little bit of a risk. But if you tell N'Golo Kante to shift over to the left centre midfield spot and play Pogba on the right, then at least you've got some cover. Tell Antoine Griezmann to help out from the number 10 spot. We know that he's the hardest worker in the team, bar Kante. So then when you're 3-1 up, you can take off Pogba and bring on Rabiot, someone who will offer a little bit more defensive protection. Not much, it must be said. Or you can bring on Musa Sissoko and play him as the one of the central midfielders. Like there were options there, but it just it felt so weird. Like trying to fit, he was trying to fit everyone in, as Dej said, and it just didn't work. And I think, I think it's a, like it may be a little bit of a case of the Guardiola's. Like I think he's just overthinking it a little bit. Like well, Pete, when, when you're three one up, surely this isn't down. Nine to minutes to go. Nine minutes to go. I, I don't think you could. Throw this at the door of Deschamps. No, but I just, I, I just think that in that in that situation, if you've gone with a different starting lineup, you can then make the changes to to solidify the team. Like even when it was three one, throughout the game, it wasn't as if France were keeping Switzerland like out. Like Switzerland were having chances for most of the game. So like the goals didn't come out of nowhere. Like you thought France were vulnerable, and I just think that if you if you've gone with a different starting lineup, then you've got the players on the bench like a Tolisso or a or Rabiot to come in, mm. shore up that midfield. Mm. And because like, the ball was just going through that midfield, which, which isn't something you always say about the French one. But, and obviously then he took off Griezmann. And I think that was a mistake as well, because I think he was creating a lot for them. He was probably their best attacking player, even though he didn't score. And I just, yeah, I, I don't know. It, it felt like, yeah, I, I, I know. It just felt like a few little missteps. And I, I agree with what you're saying, because I do think that obviously if you're 3-1 up with 10 minutes to go, you've got to not concede two mm. goals in five minutes. And I think, Again, as I reiterate, the manner of the goals was really poor. And I think if you're United or Chelsea watching that and you're thinking about signing Rafael Varane, you're probably going to take off five million euros from the, <laughs> from the fee you're going to pay to Real Madrid. I, I like Varane, so I think he's a great defender. And I think so is, I think so is Kimpembe. But it's, it's, yeah, I don't know. It just feels like, it feels like there could have been a little bit more done for the manager for me. Yeah, yeah. Fair, fair play. Certainly, there is there is uh, you know a, a blame to be apportioned to a few different parties on on on, on this particular um, occasion. Um, that being said, some of the goals were really really well taken from um, from Switzerland. I mean, the part for the third goal, the pass from Xhaka into uh, Gavranovic, and the way that he you know wrong footed. I think it was Kempembe, and then slotted it bottom left. I thought was quite quite um, quite tasty. Um, and Seferovic, I mean, two very, very fine headers from, from, from him. He's, he seemed to have uh, continued his fine form that he's displayed domestically for Benfica so far this season. I think he got 22 goals in 31 games for them um, and also got into the team of the year. Um, and he just seems to be a, an absolute threat so far. Two-headed goals. Do you know, it, 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 it made me beg the question, Pete, because we've seen a few teams score these headed goals where it's like an early cross whipped in from a fullback or a winger and then a centre forward get on the end of it and, 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 and bury it with a header. Why aren't more teams doing that? Why aren't more teams utilising that strategy? Because it seems as though a lot of defences don't have an answer for it. You know, we've seen quite a few of them, haven't we? So why isn't it a tactic being deployed more often? I think just because it's not trendy, honestly. Like, I just think, like, <laughs> I honestly just think, like, the, the trend now is to... We've gone away from the sort of, like, brief obsession with a false nine, but now it is very much like a... You want at least a quick striker. Like, as long, if he's big, it doesn't matter. Like, you look at Marcus, Marcus Rashford, Erling mm. Haaland, Romelu Lukaku. If they're big, it doesn't matter. Like, But they have to be quick. And 
Seferovic has never been the quickest player. Like I think when he was a bit younger, he had some pace about him, but obviously now not so much. I mean, he's really the ultimate sort of B plus sort of mm. striker. Like he's always going to be a decent level, but he never really like lit the Bundesliga up. And I don't think he's ever going to be that sort of player who will go and score like 15, 18 Bundesliga goals on a regular basis. Like you might get a season or two out of him, but it wouldn't be for like four or five years in a row. So I think with him and Shaka, I think you can file them in the Yarmolenko category. I think like, there's something about them that just seems to really come alive when they play for their country. And I think, yeah, this like, the Swiss team is very similar to this Ukraine team. There's a lot of really good players there and they're pretty mm. well organised. And yeah, I think they're going to give Spain a real like, a real push. Like, but, yeah. but I think it'll be, I think for, I think the way, you look at the way that someone like Rebic was really making life difficult for the Spanish defenders. And I think I, th- I think you look at Seferovic and you think, like, does Laporte fancy that? Like, I don't know. Mm. Like, depends. On, also, we don't know who's going to play next to him, whether it's Garcia or Pau Torres. And like, I don't know if either of them really are up for. They don't Seferovic. look like they're very confident in the air, do they? Yeah, I just, neither of them. I, exactly. You just think like, do you want Seferovic being a nuisance for ninety minutes? Like, I, I, that's not going to be fun for either of them. So yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I think I think you might see more of those strikers. I think especially at the international level. I think because so many. Oh, these elite level defenders don't see these type of strikers at club level. Yeah. Like you think about really like you don't if you're playing in any of the top five leagues, you only really face that kind of striker maybe 10 yeah. games at yeah. most of the season. Most of the time you're trying to deal with like players, like, I don't know, like Jamie Vardy or something. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. So like, yeah, I'd I'd be super interested to see whether more sort of middling nations, the ones who are sort of like 10 to 25 in the in the UEFA rankings are sort of they start looking at that and thinking like that might be our avenue in to cause a bit of damage. Yeah. Yeah. Most, most certainly. And, and the one final question I wanted to ask you on this one is um, around the play, the player who was named man of the match. Uh, surprisingly, when you've got the players like the likes of Mbappe, Griezmann, Pogba, Kante on the pitch, um, it ends up being Granite Xhaka being named yeah. man of the match. And he was absolutely imperious that game. I mean, he, really didn't put a, a, a foot wrong. He's, he's you know, expansive passing. He was tough in a tackle um, and, you know, really showing some real leadership qualities, you know, when, when, when his team needed him to. And, and I, I guess the question I want to ask on this is surely Arsenal aren't going to let him go for the rumoured, what was it, between 13 and 18 million that's being, the, the, the figure that's being thrown around. Surely Arsenal would be absolutely foolish to allow him to go to Roma for such a cut price, given his age, given his kind of contribution, the kind mm. of performances we we know that he has in his locker, and the fact that he's going to be going to Italy, where you know I certainly feel is is going to be the perfect league for him. You know, surely Arsenal have to be reconsidering that 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 sale at that price. It's hard, isn't it? Because I'm quite a big believer in mentality and situations as terms it comes to football. I don't think Shaka was brilliant in the Bundesliga. And when Arsenal signed him, it was, I don't think it was like lauded as like the signing of the season, but it was definitely praised as like an intelligent signing. Yeah, there was a slight concern about his tendency to jump into tackles, but I think mostly it was pretty widely praised. Um, But it just hasn't worked out. Like I think he was in a really tough situation. Obviously, Arsenal have gone through a horrendous rebuilding period and in many ways still are. So I think a lot of the times, I think because he was 
more he was more notable on the pitch I think and then some other players I think he often mm. drew criticism from the fans I think he probably has been over criticized it's not to say he's been doing like excellently but he hasn't been doing noticeably much worse than others and I think with Switzerland we can see the sort of player that Arsenal thought they were going to get and that's probably because he feels a lot more comfortable in that environment with the Swiss national team like he did with Gladbach and I think he's being made to feel wanted by Roma I think Jose Mourinho and Roma have obviously identified him as the player they want to play in central midfield. And I think that's going to help him. And I think, as you said, the style of football in Italy will definitely suit him as well. And I think, I think if you're asking me to look at it and just think like, is he realistically going to sign a new deal somewhere where he's evidently not that happy? Mm. And I don't know. Like, I think the like, Italian fans are obviously notoriously like difficult to please, but I think he will get a lot of support, at least in the start. And I just think for everyone, I think it's probably a, the time to move on like maybe the fee isn't as high as some people would like but I think I I don't think you could probably ask Roma for more than an extra maybe five million based mm. on these performances at all so I think really for everyone a fresh start is best yeah yeah well said fair fair play now the the other game which was I'd say equally as uh, interesting and had an, an equal amount of ups and downs and back and forths was uh, the Spain-Croatia game um, that was played earlier on in the in, in the day to the, uh, the the France-Switzerland game. And I mean, wow, uh, where where do you even start with this game? I, I mean, for me, the key thing and the standout moment was where the much maligned Alvaro Morata stepped up when it really mattered, and he scored that vital. For a uh, uh, goal for for Spain, and I mean, you know, for all of their dominance in terms of possession and the fact that they've had brilliant passages of play and and really dominated possession in 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 most of the games that they've played so far this Euros, it Spain have felt a bit toothless and and not necessarily very prolific in front of goal, but that goal particularly from Alvaro Morata was so well taken. You know, the first touch with his right and then to bury it with his left. I felt that that was, you know, that was the, the, the pick of the bunch for me. But I mean, you know, there, there, there were so many other key points in, the, in, in that game. And I think one other thing that stood out for me was the fact that this tournament has provided us with some of the most bizarre own goals that we've ever seen, right? Um, and it seems like there is, there, there's one every few days. But that, that own goal... I think it was unfair for it to be uh, given as um, a Pedri own goal because he made obviously the the the, 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 the back pass, but then um, Unai uh, Simon did actually touch it before it went in. So I think it was unfair for it to be a Pedri own goal. I think it should have been attributed to to, to Unai Simon. But I mean, again, just absolutely mental to see that uh, in, in that game, wasn't it, Pete? Oh god, yeah. As the as a proud member of the goalkeepers union, that broke my heart. Um, <laughs> god, yeah, that's that's about that's about as bad as you can get for a professional footballer and as a goalkeeper in terms of own goals. I mean, we've seen some pretty bad ones in this tournament for keepers. Yeah, um, yeah it's it's obviously just yeah, you you have to you have to feel for him. It's a terrible moment. Um, the only great the great thing obviously is that he made that blinding stop um, late on to redeem himself in many ways yeah. and to and to prove why. Um, Luis Enrique has chosen him over David De Gea um, mm. but yeah as you said you don't really know where to start with this game I mean it was it was there were so many different things going on at once I mean Croatia were obviously great like they gave a good, really great account of themselves and then for Spain like you had 
players coming in and scoring. It was Cesar Spelicueta's first goal for Spain. Pablo Sarabia, like he was really criticised as an inclusion, really a surprise choice before the tournament. So was Ferran Torres. And then, yeah, as you said, Morata. I mean, again, I'm going to, I'm going to plug another piece on our website, but last week, uh, Grace Robertson wrote a really good article basically defending Morata and saying, like, he scores, he scores goals. I don't understand what more people want for him. And I think, like, everyone knows what we want. Like, we want a little bit more fight from Morata, a little bit more consistency, not really not snatching at chances so much. But his goal record does speak for himself. And yeah, it felt ironic in some ways that he scored the most difficult chance he's had all tournament. Um, and it was an amazing goal. Um, but yeah, I think there are still probably some real worries for Spain. I think particularly the Mario pa- Pasalic goal, the defending for that was atrocious. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think yeah, they're going to be they're going to be tested a lot by this Swiss team. But from where Spain were, and they're now quarter finalists, like it's not really like it's not that bad. I mean, I don't really know what people from Spain would been would have been expecting before the tournament began. Like, I'm not entirely sure you could say with confidence they're one of the four best teams in Europe right now and could get to the mm. semi-finals. So, yeah, I mean, re- normally the boring teams win tournaments. So I don't think Spain are going to win, but they are entertaining mm. at least. And that's one thing. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they go on against the Swiss, but I don't think they'll go much further than the semis. Mm. Fair, fair play, fair play. Now, of course, at this stage, it is very difficult to, to give a prediction because as we've seen, you know, there is so much, so there's so many twists and turns in this tournament. And I think for me, one of the key things that have stood out is that there has been no inferiority complex from the smaller nations. You know, everyone seems like they're right up for it and, you know, willing to, 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 to go above and beyond to, to get over the line. So for that reason, it's difficult, I know. However, I'm still going to ask the question. The, I know we still have the quarterfinals and we still have the semifinals to play. But at this stage of the competition, who have you got as nailed on to win the tournament? I know it's hard. I, I said I said France and Portugal at the start of this, and now I've got egg on my face. But um, if you yeah. had to nail your colours to the mast, who would it be? Can I say Denmark? I mean, that's just that's the emotional response. Isn't it? Um, yeah, it's hard because I think. I think I would really, I think I'd really say Belgium. I think if I knew about Kevin De Bruyne and has Eden Hazard's fitness, I think mm. I just think that with those two playing behind Romelu Lukaku with Thorgan Hazard, I think it's really difficult to stop. Even though the defense is a bit shaky, mm. but given that we we don't know if they'll be fit to play in Sicily, we don't know how fit they're going to be going throughout the tournament. They might, they might only play, be able to play 30 minutes now for the rest of the tournament. So mm. I don't think you can say them with confidence. I think really you have to look at the best team right now and that's probably England, which is really not what I think a lot of people were expecting mm. after the Scotland game, for example. But they are doing it slowly but surely. And I just think the Ukraine will be a test. The winners of the Czech Republic or Denmark will be a test. But they really shouldn't be like a problem for England. The test is fine, but a problem I don't think they should be. And I know the Scotland game was a bit like disappointing, I think, for some England fans. And I know the Czech Republic game was probably frustrating, but Mm. they just, they really look troubled. Like I think teams aren't getting in behind England that often. I think it comes back to what Dej said at the start about Calvin Phillips and Declan Rice. I think they're offering such a great shield that even if there are potential deficiencies in the back line, they're not being exposed 
And at the same time, it's giving the platform to the attacking players to do just about enough to go over the line. So unless someone can find a way to upset the rhythm of those two in the middle of the park, I just can't see England being really troubled until the final. And obviously then it's a coin toss. Mm, 100%. Just a side note on that Belgian pick. Um, I saw um, a few memes during the rounds that now Thorgan Hazard is, is better than his older <laughs> brother Eden. <laughs> I, mean, I, think, I mean, right now, I mean, I don't think you could disagree with that. Like, he's been, He's he's had a he's had a, he hasn't had a standout year for Dortmund. He's had a pretty mm. good year for Dortmund though, and he obviously Eden has had a horrendous year for Real Madrid. So yeah, I don't yeah. think argue against that. <laughs> right, Dej, I've got to I'll ask you the same question. I've got to ask you. I know it's difficult. We yeah. still have the quarterfinals. We still have the semifinals to play. However, if you had to nail your colours to the mask at this stage, which team are you picking to go all the way? I think if we're judging in terms of consistency all throughout the tournament, I think you would have to say England. They've maintained their performance from the start to finish. Denmark obviously riding on a high of emotion after the mm. Christian Eriksen incident. But they've also got quality. You know, Damsgaard is a player I like a lot. He's sort of filled into that Christian Eriksen role in terms of his creativity. Mm. And also, I have to say Italy. I think Belgium, we sort of saw in the last game against obviously Portugal, they look leggy, they look tired. And Kevin De Bruyne, I don't think he's going to have enough time to recover because it looked like sort of like an ankle ligament sort of thing. Hazard looked cramp or hamstring. And if those two players aren't there, we saw in that 45 minutes against Denmark, you know, they haven't really got an identity. They haven't got that foil to be able to create for Romelu Lukaku. So I'd Mm -hmm. definitely say Italy would be my favourites. And I think Roberto Mancini would have learned the lesson that you have to play Locatelli. That, you know, 45, 60 minutes with Verratti and Jorginho, it wasn't really penetrative. You know, they're press-resistant passes, but they can't get you from A to B. And we sort of saw them slow down. So I'd have to say from that end, Italy would be my finalist. And from the other side, England would be my finalists. I do yeah. think I do think, I do think Italy are going to struggle against Lukaku, though. Like I do think you look at the way Arnautovic was getting a bit of joy out yeah. of them during the Austria game. I do think, I mean, obviously if Kalini's back, it changes another thing. But one of the benefits of Belgium, I think, of Hazard or De Bruyne not being there is I imagine that Doku might come in and start as well. And obviously yeah. his, 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 his pace Very is going to be a problem for that back line. Because I think apart from Spinozola, there isn't really a lot there where you watch it. I mean, Di Lorenzo is quick, but he seems to get caught out quite a lot as well. So I agree with you. I think if De Bruyne is not there, I think, Italy will probably win, but I think it will be, I think it'll be the cagiest match of the four. You think so? You think Roberto Mancini is going to rein Spinozola back in again? I think, I think, I think Chiesa has to start ahead of Berardi yeah, now as well. I think he yeah. has to. And Locatelli come in potentially for Verratti as well, because I wasn't too impressed. He didn't really look at the races, you know, in mm. the game. Mm. I like the, I like the idea of using Chiesa in the Jack Grealish role to like just torment defences, but it works for England because you've got other players playing well. But I haven't really been blown away by Berardi so far in this yeah. tournament. I think he started pretty well, but he was really quiet against Italy. So I think if he'd had, I guess Austria, sorry, if he'd had a really, if he had a really great game in that game, then I think you could be happy starting him and leaving Chiesa as your impact sub. But I think you've got to make a switch now. Mm. And I think another player that's certainly gone under the radar a little bit for, for Italy is Pessina. I think... His contribution, his energy, his legs from midfield and, and, and the fact that he does get forward and, and can contribute is, uh, you know, a, a definitely uh, one to, to look out for in, in, in that game too. 
and at this moment, you're looking for the teams that are fresh. And the teams that are fresh are teams that have been able to chop and change. When you look mm. at England, they've been able to bring in Kieran Trippier, Saka. And that's good for the, the rest of the squad. Whereas mm. teams like a Belgium and other teams, they're playing the same eleven. And over the course of a tournament, after a long, hard, arduous season, there's an accumulative effect. So mm. I think Italy and England are the two teams that I think still have a lot more left in them. Fair play. Will that be the the final this time round in 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 the Euros? We'll have to wait and see. Um, but for now, I think we're going to leave it there. Thank you very much, gentlemen, for your contributions. It was great uh, dissecting each of the, these games and, of course, previewing the next round of, of, of fixtures too. Of course, we'll be back in uh, the next few days once those fixtures have been played to uh, dissect those again. And I'm sure they, as they have been throughout the whole tournament, loads of talking points, lots of highs and lows and things for us to uh, delve into and, and speak about. So thank you very much for listeners for tuning in up until this point in time. We're going to leave it there. Uh, we'll catch you on the next episode. Until then, over and out. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 